breathwork is is not it's not it's not the key to break it all right it's 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 the pathway in to understanding our nervous system a lot better so that we can unpack the years of trapped emotion that is stored in our very tissue mm-hmm. and i'm seeing that in my experience of working with people closely one to one in group therapy i imagine most of the listeners could say they've seen on social media they always see this um we don't have to name names, but there's always one or two breathwork practitioners in the world that post these super like dramatic photos of somebody having a huge cathartic release. And it's great. I'm glad that people are coming to this space, but that's not it, right? That is occurring as a result of people accessing a deeper part of themselves. It's mm-hmm. what comes after that, that we're missing the point. And this mm-hmm. is where I believe we could start approaching uh, PTSD symptoms and, and like symptoms uh, with a new way of education. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is veteran, ultra-endurance athlete and breathwork specialist, William Burnett. William came to visit Paul at his Rainbow House for the sound healing workshop earlier this year, and we are glad to welcome him back for a deep dive into his personal journey, breathwork, healing trauma, overcoming energetic blockages, and his upcoming Guinness World Record attempt, Project Light. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. And now, here is Paul with William talking about the PTSD epidemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we have an important topic to discuss, the PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder epidemic. My guest is William Burnett. He's a very interesting guy with a very interesting background. He's been in the military for many years, and his own challenges with PTSD and his own healing process brought him to the awareness that there was a lot he could do to help people with PTSD in the world, and he's doing a fantastic job of it. So today, we're going to go on a tour de France of what PTSD is, all about it, what can do, what can we do about it, and uh, I'm excited for all of you to engage William with me. William, welcome. Thank you, brother. It's, it's a pleasure to, to be have, here. Yeah. And... Uh, Actually, how this podcast came about is interesting. William was in my sound healing workshop. What was that, about a month ago? Yeah. And uh, he just came up to me, had a little chat, and started talking about what he does. And I said, oh, how interesting. I've been looking for somebody to talk to this about. <laughs> and I had been it had been on my mind for quite a while, because as I shared with you, I've worked with a lot of PTSD patients in my career, and I know how complicated the issues is, and I've had my own... And as I said, I think everybody in my family has PTSD. Um, but, uh, you know, with the busyness of everything that I'm doing and so on and so forth, I just, I had my radar up, but I hadn't had time to really find out, okay, who's the PTSD expert I should go find. And so it was almost like the universe just put you right in front of me at the right time. So I'd love to start with a definition, William, of what. PTSD is, just so everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. I'm going to give you my experience in PTSD or or what I would consider the symptoms of PTSD. We've had a conversation previous to this and we talked about 
my opinion about it. And currently, I believe the Western medical system has created this diagnosis to simply put people in a box and start treating them from this place. Yet the treatment's still not adequate enough because we see PTSD statistics and suicidal statistics on the rise, right? And so for me, PTSD is more of a biological reflex, you know, for someone personally experiencing some sort of trauma in their life that they've not been conditioned to. Mm -hmm. And the trauma is manifesting itself into its own personality. Yet these, these reflexes that we're experiencing continue to grow, create a personality, like I just said, creating their own personality. And there's no more discussion about, you know, the person as an individual. We talk about a deeper study of an individual, where this person has come from, what their, what their story is. Right. Right. And I said this to you before, like PTSD feels too finite to me. It's like, this is the diagnosis. This is what you have. We're going to treat it with meds or drugs. Well, you know, that's the point, right? Right. From a medical perspective, anything they can put into a diagnosis, they can make drugs for. Mm. And having studied this a lot, um, if you really study how they do it, they actually take drugs and relabel them. So they take a drug that's for one diagnosis and they relabel the same drug. So it looks like another drug and they prescribe it for another diagnosis. So it looks like you're actually getting a drug that's specific for your problem, but that drug's actually being used for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different mm. things. It's just a way to sell drugs. Right. And unfortunately the whole VA hospital system doesn't really do anything but Sell drugs. sell drugs but these drugs aren't doing anything no drugs, they're making people worse they're making it worse they're shutting off receptors they're shutting down neurological pathways and so most people are finding themselves in this situation of like numbness mm-hmm. right when it were a lack of feeling and man we're at a point in time right now where we're we're witnessing how that has gone for us over time don't feel your feelings where right. are we at with that you know yeah right here <laughs> and so these these drugs are numbing people now In my experience with PTSD symptoms, uh, much rather than a diagnosis, we we can be doing a whole lot more by discovering the intricacies of this person's lifestyle, Mm -hmm. that being where they've come from, what family systems they've come from, what geographical locations they've grown up in. That includes but not limited to the nutrition that's been available, (laughs) financial support that they've had or the stability that they've had in finances whether that be through mum and dad or themselves uh, as an individual, we can look at uh, the social aspects of what they're experiencing, you know. And if we dive deeper into the intricacies of these stories that these people have, we're going to gain a better understanding of why this person has responded to the situation at hand that has manifested itself into trauma. Now, tra- a lot of people consider trauma to be the event that occurred that created this imbalance in the system, mm-hmm. right? And biologically, we'll experience an imbalance in hormones. We'll experience a- an imbalance of chemicals being released from the brain to the body. Psychologically, we start to develop new patterns of behavior based upon what's going on. But, you know, the trauma isn't the thing that happened. The trauma is the result of what we perceived ourselves in that reality, how we experience the event, mm-hmm. how we related to it. Mm-hmm. And now as it manifests and develops its own personality, now the trauma starts to manifest, right? And just to be clear for, for the listeners, like it, it's thrown around too often that trauma is this thing, right? And it can be quickly, quickly discovered that 
if we dive into the intricacies, as I was saying, of these people's stories and learn these lifestyle factors, we're going to be better prepared to treat this PTSD symptom mm-hmm. and, and actually remove the risk of it growing exponentially. Yeah. Well, just just for the listeners, give us some of the hallmarks that would be indicative that someone does have PTSD. We look at demographics first. We're looking at, you know, predominantly the conversation is in around veterans and mm-hmm. a lot of my work is with veterans. Um, but veterans aren't, aren't the minority or the majority here. We have people that have uh, experienced some level of molestation as a child, mm-hmm. been raped, mm-hmm. people that are experiencing acute uh, or sudden uh, responses to an event. First responders experience this. There's often that, you know, we have volunteer firefighters that are arriving to the scene mm-hmm. Joe's just come from chopping wood all day. He's a volunteer, and then all of a sudden he's arriving to a scene that is presenting information that he is not conditioned to witness. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's the demographics we're talking about, and we can go deeper into tra- uh, TBI, like traumatic brain injuries, and people from explosions, sporting events, uh, industrial accidents. You know, the list goes on in terms of demographic. When we're looking at the the psychological and biological reflexes of PTSD symptoms, we're looking at depressive mood disorders. We could be looking at alcoholism, addicted to drugs or painkillers. We could look at disassociation, isolation from society. Um, yeah, the list the list goes on with that. Yeah, so a lot of the I'd say most of the PTSD that I've treated in my career has come from head injuries predominantly. Um, from combat sports, car accidents, industrial accidents, um, things of that nature, fighting, um, a lot of it in, in cage fighters, boxers. Um, and then all the other things you mentioned, of course. And, and so any kind of physical or, or psychological trauma, you know, I imagine you can imagine being the weekend warrior firefighter you talked about showing up to see a body half burned and children you know consumed half by fire and and stuff that's just very shocking to Mm -hmm. to see i mean most people would probably pass out if they even witnessed the slaughter of an animal which is why i tell people if you want to cure your over consumption of meat go to a slaughterhouse and witness a slaughter that'll you know give you but i might be exposing them to ptsd (laughs) (laughs) but um the other one that i've seen a lot of is sexual trauma Mm. um rape mostly rape in childhood years and that causes a long series of problems and i think there's a lot of violence in families i remember reading basil vanderklok's book the title slips my mind right now. Um, you know, Basil Vanderklok, the body pain, body keeps the score. Your body keeps the yeah. score. Yeah, the statistics on family trauma yeah. are pretty shocking. I mean, yeah, I don't remember. It was like almost fifty percent of families have a lot of trauma in them, right? Like physical trauma. Yeah, you know. Um, and the the other stat that shocked me was um, something like. Uh, over 50% of mil- active military are on psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. I had no idea it was that bad. Mm-hmm. And so when you start <clears throat> looking into the you know experts on trauma, 
like Basil van der Klock and um, what's the Canadian physician? Gabo Mate. Mate. I've read two of his books. Um, and people like Peter Levine, who I've studied several of his books. Mm. You start realizing that um, we're, we're just not a very healthy people worldwide. No. Nah. It's, it's, um, and there's, you know, there's a lot now, there's a lot, as you know, of, of trauma therapists emerging and it's easy to find videos on YouTube and Gaia TV. And I mean, it's, and, and I think COVID really is sort of push the PTSD awareness right up to the surface, mm-hmm. like beer coming, bubbling to the top and creating foam. You know, it's like, okay, everybody's realizing because I think all the isolation and all the psychological psyops stress um, pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall for a lot of mm-hmm. people. I mean, uh, people that were dealing with, uh, you know, all sorts of unhealed issues that are contributors and compounding contributors to PTSD. When they when COVID happened, it just pushed a lot of people right off the other edge. And we, we saw that with rapidly escalating uh Suicide rates amongst young people, 20 years and younger, was the highest group of suicide victims. And uh, I saw a uh, a real good documentary on these things showing the statistics. And it was like a 20% increase in um, suicide rates amongst young people just since the beginning of COVID. That's a pretty serious deal i mean you're talking about massive numbers of people committing suicide so there's a lot going on um you you talked about the story and i've studied the human story a lot i've studied mythology extensively for many years and one of the i took a course from james hillman who's a very famous union analyst and professor of union psychology and um the course was called Tracking the Gods, and it's all about what myth is and how it plays out in our lives consciously and unconsciously. And he said something in there that I wanted to bring up because of what you said earlier about stories. And he, he said that it does not matter whether a person's story lines or the key markers in their story are fact or fiction mm-hmm. because it affects them the same and there's no difference within a person's own psyche between fact or fictional perception of their experience of life. And a good example of this is you can have people that were raised in families that have PTSD-type symptoms and other serious psychological symptoms but on evaluating their cases and even interviewing their parents, I've often found that their upbringing wasn't traumatic at all. But of course, I'm comparing it to my own childhood right. or to the childhood of others that I've worked with as a therapist that had you know, serious physical violence and things like that. But what, what the research shows and what I've found through my own investigations is it's each person's perception mm. of their experience And so what may not seem traumatic to me at all could be perceived as very traumatic to that child or that individual. And because their perception is the basis of their reality, if they perceive that they're not being loved or that they're being abused or 
belittled or psychologically messed with. Now, they wouldn't say, my dad's messing with me psychologically. They might just see, you know, every time I'm around my father, he tells me how useless I am or Mm -hmm. something. So then their story, their inner story begins to craft itself. And when you look at what the story is and the magnitude of how bad things were, and then you interview the parents, it's like two completely different stories. Mm -hmm. But what James Hollis showed is it, it doesn't matter if it's a factual perception, if it's in their story, even if it's amplified or made up, it affects them as though it's real. And I think the point I'm wanting to bring to the table is that PTSD does not have to come from something that somebody else thinks is a terrible trauma. It could be something that the individual has a significant enough stress response that if it doesn't get healed, then it begins to accumulate, right? So the next insult adds to it, then the next insult adds to it. And the overarching response to that is things like seeking drugs to get rid of the pain or cutting oneself or um, fetishes or addictions or violent behaviors or serious problems in relationships or learning disabilities. And because each of us is unique in the way we perceive and experience and process our own inner world and our trauma, what may not seem threatening or stressful at all to me might be very stressful to you or the person sitting next to you which goes back to something you alluded to is that we we can't use a cookie cutter approach and assume that okay you have to have for example if you were to do research on what chronic fatigue syndrome is mm-hmm. there's two classic models they use a 7 point model and a 14 point model so as a therapist if someone comes to me with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, there's seven points on their body where I can press into them. And if they have pain in all seven points, by that model, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. There's another one that has 14 points. So they're, they're saying, well, you, you got to have more than those seven, right? <laughs> but the point is, is there's a cookie cutter. Now, it could be that an athlete did a CrossFit training session two days ago and all 14 points are sore, but now they've got a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome and nobody in the physical therapy ward or doctor's office has a clue what CrossFit is and how you can get global inflammation. And all of a sudden now you're on drugs and you're, you're, you got a label. Mm. But the point that I'm trying to bring to the surface here is that you can't really use that kind of diagnostic model, which is a standard medical approach for almost everything. If you check these boxes off, you've got this problem. And they don't look any further than that. I mean, how many doctors are going to listen to your story when the average doctor spends six minutes with a patient, right? So what we end up having is a very confused PTSD environment where people are getting misdiagnosed or not diagnosed or ignored But when they do get diagnosed, they get put into a schedule of commonly used drugs, none of which address the story, the perception, or the experience that a person has. And I think that points out two things. We we continue to see that our medical systems worldwide are very dysfunctional. And two, we continue to see that the standard approach to treatment in many areas of medicine 
is still based on a cookie-cutter approach, and it's not based on a skillful investigation of a person's life and how they're perceiving the events of their life, which leads to what we've got with PTSD, people all over the world living in tents now because they're being basically extricated from society. They don't fit in. Right. There's a saying I teach all of my students. The pain is seldom where the actual problem is. For example, I've seen many cases of rotator cuff problems that wouldn't heal even after surgery. But what most doctors and therapists overlook is that the right shoulder is under influence from the liver and the left shoulder the stomach. Once we apply the principles of detoxification, support digestion, and clear parasites, presto, shoulders start healing and working beautifully again. If you learn to see people holistically, like I teach my students in Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 1, you begin to see the true source of our illnesses and injuries. HLC 1 teaches you many essential approaches to health and well-being, such as how to assess what key body systems are under too much stress and how to restore balance, the importance of identifying a realistic dream goal or objective that inspires each individual to stick to their healing program and make the short and long-term changes that are necessary, my universally applicable 1-2-3-4 formula for assessing and correcting challenges, how to breathe optimally to enhance energy levels and mental clarity, how to use gentle movements to work in and enhance life force energy and support optimal immune function, how the function and health of the soil that food is grown in influences all systems of the body, including our mental-emotional stability, and much more. HLC1 is just a small part of what we teach our Czech Academy students, our education system for elite trainers and health professionals. Gavin Jennings and I designed the academy to take you from wherever you are right now, even if you have no fitness or health education, to being one of the best holistic health and performance professionals on this planet. And as a Czech Academy student, you'll be able to help a lot of people reach their health goals in ways you never imagined. There is, in my opinion, nothing more rewarding and meaningful in life than helping other people look, feel, and live better. We are now accepting applications into the Czech Academy, so whether you're wanting to change your career or add a truly effective new dimension to your current skill set, now is the time to apply. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash L number 4D Academy. That's chekinstitute.com forward slash L4D Academy. Let's make the world a better place together. We're seeing PTSD as an identity now and that story of having the identity gives people a framework to live from a place to live from yeah now you brought up a a fantastic point about what could be uh creating a high level of arousal in the system for me might not be the same for you Right. right veterans commonly will say most veterans are returning from combat with ptsd now i would argue that if most veterans are returning from combat with PTSD because of the job to which they were put in, then we're we're essentially saying that they're what they're training for, yeah. they're not conditioned for. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, what they're witnessing in combat uh, isn't affecting them. It, it very much is. What what we're looking at here is, you know, outside of the veteran community, something that is creating a high level of stress 
or arousal in the nervous system mm-hmm. is manifesting in the system. Yes. That means that anything from that place now, the individual is starting to learn its own behaviors and starting to live from that place. Yes. Now, if someone gets diagnosed with PTSD, it's a fantastic label and identity to live from because I don't know the self before that or I don't want to know the self before that because it's too dark, right? Because they experienced the, the event that caused the trauma. Now, coming from that place, uh, we start to develop characteristics uh, because it's being signaled to us. Now, if I go to a therapist and I'm displaying symptoms of PTSD and the therapist starts going through his cookie cutter or she starts going through a cookie cutter process, I'm now starting to relate to the symptoms as an individual Yes, because it's being signaled to the body. Yeah. Now, if we look in this COVID pandemic where kids are in houses uh, being like locked away because we're told we're not allowed to leave our homes. Right. And some of these environments are quite volatile and abusive. This child is being raised in an environment to which later on, that's what they're conditioned to. Yeah. Now when they leave home uh, and we've seen, I've seen this in my experience working with people in a therapeutic setting, they've grown up in environments that were abusive and volatile. Now when they don't have that and they leave home, what do you think they're going to look for? Well, they're going to go look for what they know. What they know. They're finding it in relationships, they're finding it in work, they're finding it in lifestyle factors. And if they don't find it, they create it. They create it themselves. They self-sabotage their own lifestyles. Yeah. And now here in this moment is where we can't take a cookie cutter approach because there's too many variables that are playing a role. Mm-hmm. Right? If if we're ra- being raised in these environments that are volatile, abusive, um, you know, our fathers are telling us we're useless pieces of shit and and that's what we grow to believe that's what we grow into yeah now if you add in there uh you know levels of stress from food uh maybe an influx of technology if you add in there levels of stress from school or being bullied at school mm-hmm. um being poor these start to compound on the stress that is already present in the system yes we're taking them from a sympathetic tone a sympathetic nervous system to even further and that put them in a dorsal vagal state yeah right so they're already stressed as hell and now we're adding more yeah the pandemic's done exactly that not only has it done that by design by design now it's starting to teach the younger generations what is the new norm face masks no longer can we see facial recognition of others we can't search for ourselves in other people's facial expressions because we can't see them yeah body language well we need to stay two meters apart yeah there's no contact. There's no energetic exchange. There's no mm-hmm. touching. There's no intimacy. It right? turns people into objects. It really does. Yeah. It's starting to dilute the very fabric of what we're built upon as human beings. Which is classic brainwashing strategy. And it's been happening since we were children. Yeah. Now, we're experiencing a rising level of PTSD, in my belief, is because it's such an easy label to attach to. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't belong to something, then what do I belong to? Yeah. The I. Yeah, We had this conversation the other day. I was talking to you about my children in being the I. I know that my children could stand in a room and say, I am in the room mm-hmm. because they're confident in knowing who the I is. Yes, It confuses the fuck out of me that people go out and learn all these things and pr- project themselves into the world as all these qualification certifications and they don't know who the I is. Yeah. How can you know what anything else is if you don't know what the I is? Well, w- all you can do is is... Uh, project your programming onto the world you're you're basically just a 
a, a control bot. And now we're environmental signaling people. Yeah. We're signaling each other's biology by the way that we are behaving and showing up in society. Yeah. Now, our body, my mentor teaches this uh, this protocol or philosophy about having this black box inside of us, right? Mm -hmm. We've got information, that being our reality and what you were saying about perceiving ourselves in our own reality. That's where the information comes in. We call this input. Mm -hmm. comes into the body and goes through a process, a system process. Yeah. Each individual is going to process that, that information separately and differently. Yes. The yellow wall behind us, I'm going to see a different type of yellow to what you are, and we're going to process that information differently. Mm -hmm. The outputs, when it comes out of the black box, out of the system processing, the output is our uh, participation in our lives, in our realities. Mm -hmm. And that is the cycle of how we are perceiving ourselves to which where we are creating the stress based upon the stories we are telling ourselves. It's a classic Pavlovian, Pavlovian stimulus response. Right. And the physiologically speaking, there's what's called facilitation of the central nervous system. And having worked with thousands of chronic pain patients, what the research clearly shows, and I actually wrote, uh, co-wrote two comprehensive articles on this called The Ghost and the Machine about how the whole science, the whole field and science of musculoskeletal rehabilitation has taken soul out of the equation mm. and they just treat people as mechanical objects. But what central nervous system facilitation shows is every time we have a painful event, it becomes easier for us to be in pain. Right. And it gets to the point where the whole pain system starts to run away and you get people that are basically in chronic pain all the time, even though there doesn't seem to be a cause for the pain. Um, there's some pain pioneers called Melzack and Wall. I've studied their work quite extensively. They've got like a massive book on all their research. But they show that within the nervous system, you can create through constant or too much exposure to painful mm. events, whether physical, emotional, or mental, what's called the reverberating circuit. And they've actually shown that with certain people that once these neurons start coupling and they get facilitated, they actually run the pain signal in a loop and it won't go away. And so you get people that go through therapeutic interventions and the therapist is doing everything, but the patient's saying, my pain's still there. And so the uh, therapists and doctors often label them as people that are faking their pain to try to avoid work or to stay on disability. But what Mel, Mel Zach and Wall showed is that through centralization, uh, facilitation of the central nervous system, the system gets so over-ramped up and so excited from these repeated exposures to pain or trauma that it actually starts like an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And that's what's called a reverberating circuit. And I think... Part of the problem is, is that most therapists haven't done enough research into the actual anatomy, physiology, and psychology of pain to understand a lot of these things. So a lot of the people that are getting what would normally be standard therapeutic approaches aren't working because they've already crossed that threshold of facilitation. And the system is now basically keeping itself in pain because a way to look at this is if somebody mugs you and you're walking down a certain street in town, you're going to know every time you approach that street that it's dangerous there right. and you're going to be on red alert. Yeah. So what happens is you ramp up that person's fight or flight perceptual experience. So they're basically like an ADD person 
who's scanning the environment constantly for threats. So if a person gets to the point where they feel like they're always under threat, then the system, the adrenaline and the cortisol just stay at high, high levels, which leads to chronic health problems. It burns the system out and a whole long, long list of other things. And I think that part of the problem is, is, is that most people don't know how to calm the system. Fortunately, now the whole vagal system is starting to become popular. So we've got books on you know various techniques such as deep gargling and light stroking and many things that you can do to increase vagal tone and calm the system down mm -hmm. to switch it more parasympathetic. We've also now got, you know, thanks to Wim Hof, a breathing revolution. Uh and so now there's many experts. I just interviewed uh, Sarah Shermoli recently, and she does a technique called effigy that I told you about. You seem to have your own system you've put together. And there's a lot of people approaching the breathing aspect of it. But once you get an excited system like that, one of the things that people don't look at is if you're not getting enough sleep, it'll ramp that thing up like crazy. Mm -hmm. If you're eating toxic foods, It'll hypersensitize the sugar. system. Sugar. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of inflammatory agents added to foods, chemical mm -hmm. agents. So if a person's also drinking toxic water, if they're not um, getting enough exposure to sunlight, enough movement. So if you start looking at what it is the body needs to balance itself and come back into homeostasis and how many ways you can excite the system, mm -hmm. you see that. Like you just look at the lockdowns, what they told everybody to do it goes completely and utterly against even how you approach a viral illness. It's it's literally like turning the system against itself. Yeah, it's collectively upregulating everybody's nervous system. Yeah, right. And and finding those variables right there, uh, that's just the beginning of the journey in down-regulating the nervous system. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, something I want to point out is to dive deeper into that, uh, the metaphysical aspect of what people are experiencing as a result of this P these PTSD symptoms. Now, if we experience an event uh, that creates a stimulus in the system so much that it gets us to a point of arousal that we have a big dump of adrenaline cortisol and we come down out of that event, right, if we don't process the event, that emotion that we created or experienced in the event becomes trapped in the system. Yes. It becomes trapped in the blood. It becomes trapped in the tissue, in the bones. Anything and everything that is the fabric of who you are, it will be trapped in. Mm. Now, if that emotion stays around long enough, it starts to manifest. Now, mm. we start to see blocked energy. We start to see blocked emotion. Uh, people start to experience physical ailments as a result of the trapped emotion. Mm-hmm. And this is where it becomes quite controversial for the mainstream approach to health and fitness is because we associate injury or pain or ailment with something that occurred as a result of a physical injury or uh, my favorite is when people um, uh, being diagnosed by their family members to have a certain health condition because mom, dad, pop and granny had it as well. Right. That's my favorite one because people will say, oh, well, your mom had this. You're going to have that when you get older. Well, that individual at that time doesn't necessarily have that neurological pathway already firing and wiring to say that they're going to have that sickness or that disease. They don't mm. necessarily have it. But if you told that person for 15 years that they're going to have that with words, well, mm. guess what's going to happen? They get 
a nocebo effect. Right. Their biology is going to start to believe it and their brain is going to start to fire mm-hmm. and wire the exact pathways that needs mm-hmm. to create that disease. Yeah. So what we're looking at is unprocessed emotions, unprocessed uh, energy in motion, which is emotion, and now that's being trapped in a system being manifested. So the event that may break the camel's back mm-hmm. may not be the actual event that caused the stimulus. It right. could be previous. It could be in childhood. It mm-hmm. could be in utero. Right. Yeah. Mum could have been part of a stressful environment through gestation to where baby experienced absolutely all of the stress that she had. And then the trauma, the birth itself could have been traumatic. We could go into the birth. We probably shouldn't, but we could go into where birth is to, in today's society. It's a bad, I've had a couple of podcasts with Nathan Riley, who's a world-class holistic OBGYN who went through Czech holistic lifestyle coach training and and we've gone into the birth issue quite a bit but the hospital has made birthing a traumatic experience for any woman healthy or not in its own the start of of pregnancy it it starts right there the first thing they start doing is telling you all the ways your kid's going to be sick and dysfunctional and all the tests you got to run and you know this disease that disease but it's it's just it's just like how to scare the shit out of people get lots of money do lots of tests and find lots of reasons to um, make them think they have to have a doctor on call 24 hours a day. Right. And so that process in the start of people's life, like the first 10,000 days of someone's life is the developmental framework of who they're going to become. Right? How many years does that work out to be? It's like 23, 24 they end up being. So early adulthood and men start to mature around 21 to 23, you know, get to that. Yeah, the ego in a healthy culture, the ego forms around age 21 to 25. So it fits that. Fits that. So that framework, we're being signaled by somebody else's ideology, which we could just politely say that that's society's ideology, right? You've got a doctor who wants to rush a woman through because he's got to go play 18 holes with his buddy and we've got to get her on the table, get the baby out. He's got to wash his hands and go swing some clubs. Yeah. Like that's the current narrative. Or get more on the table so you can make more money. Make more money. Yeah. Or, yeah, we follow the money. We follow where the answers are, right? Yeah. And so stress is beginning there. Now, to my point, uh, metaphysically, this emotion is getting trapped in the system. We're developing a psychological narrative, which you and I discussed briefly uh, before around the mind virus, right, mm-hmm. Paul's work. Um, and then we're also starting to see that our biology is starting to participate in a very physical way, a material way. We're starting mm-hmm. to develop the patterns and behavior of this disease, mm-hmm. which long-term untreated or treated with drugs to dull the pain and numb the, the, the pathways turns into disease. Mm-hmm. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm here to tell you about one of my favorite symbiotica products called the Omega, and it is called the Omega because it's the Omega. So I've asked Sherevine to come in and give us the lowdown on the Omega, and I can tell you before he starts talking about it, it tastes damn good and my kids love it. So Sherevine, What's the Omega going to do to help any one of us that we need help with? Well, there's so many things that once you take the Omega that it immediately does in the body. But, you know, let's focus a little bit on the astaxanthin that's in there. Mm -hmm. As you know, you've probably seen videos of me where, you know, we have our astaxanthin facility outside of Reykjavik in Iceland. And that's where we grow that microalgae. And that's where we extract it as well. Astaxanthin is the strongest antioxidant in nature. We know that. And astaxanthin is nature's protector 
to outside energies. What's an outside energy? Oxidation, right. sunlight, anything out there that can cause things to get old, to get withered down and yeah. break down. And it's the algae's protective force. Right. So we take on that energy along with omega-3 DHA, EPA. We also have organic sea buckthorn in there. Right. This is omega-3, 6, 7, and 9. So we're hitting it on all levels. We also put phosphatidylcholine in there, which bridges it all together. So with this product, you're getting full skin protection. You're getting brain protection, cognitive pr- protection. You're getting all the things that you would need in an oil that's protective. So I look at the Omega as a protective balancer for our modern lifestyle. And it, I know I know Mana loves it. Is it good for kids at pretty much any age? Absolutely. It's good for mothers. It's good for children. It's good for the elderly. This is universal. And with all those fatty acids, it must be great for mothers that are breastfeeding. Absolutely. I mean, this is what she'll pass on to the child and she'll know where it comes from. It's not coming from China. It's coming from a wild heirloom strain in Nova Scotia. It's coming from Iceland. It's all cold pressed. It's the best ever. It's probably one of our best formulas. I love it too. I, I feel it immediately when I put it in my body. So go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. That's symbiotica.com. On checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15. That's check 15. While you're there, make sure you check out all their other products and your 15% discount is across the board. If you have kids or if you want just good general health, immune function, and just overall good vitality, go to the Omega. Now, these these practices that we're seeing, we're seeing work from Stephen Porges, the um, polyvagal theory, right? That's, that's his work. We've got Wim, who's really um, created a bridge over a humongous gap for us to bring ancient technology and wisdom of breath work back to the modern world. Now, this is just the entry because if the system's so upregulated, you're not going to be able to teach it anything. You know this. You've been doing this work for over 30 yeah, years. Yeah, well, once a person's in a high arousal state, they're left brain dominant. And you, that's the brain of doing what you've always done. You can't, you can't break their, their thought about themselves. Yeah, it traps them in a loop. You, you know, you, it's, it's actually a threat to our survival to learn something new if we think we're running for our life. Right. You know, that's why I always say... It's a bad time to throw in a cartwheel if you're running from a lion. <laughs> in other words, creativity, there's no room for creativity when you're in a sense of uh, status of survival. survival. That's right. right. So we call this like sympathetic, um, no, the sympathetic nervous system being outside the cave or parasympathetic nervous system being inside the cave. Mm-hmm. We're outside the cave. We're on high alert. We're hunting. We're probably being hunted. If we're inside the cave, it's cozy. It's warm. We're with our people, our tribe. Right now, nervous system responds exactly like that. Mm-hmm. So bringing people into a space, um, which I love that you brought that up, is, you know, breath work is, is not. It's not, it's not the key to break it all, right? It's, it's, it's the pathway in to understanding our nervous system a lot better so that we can unpack the years of trapped emotion that is stored in our very tissue. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that in my experience of working with people closely one-to-one in group therapy. I imagine most of the listeners could say they've seen on social media, they always see this, um, we don't have to name names, but there's always one or two breathwork practitioners in the world that post these super like dramatic photos of somebody having a huge cathartic release and it's great i'm glad that people are coming to this space but that's not it right 
that is occurring as a result of people accessing a deeper part of themselves. It's mm-hmm. what comes after that that we're missing the point. And this mm-hmm. is where I believe we could start approaching uh, PTSD symptoms and and lack of sy- symptoms uh, with a new way of education, teaching mm-hmm. people how we can beat it before it becomes something. Yeah, I think that that's it's it's important. It's true, but it really requires a revamping of our whole. Um, education system and are also we don't have a system that teaches parents how to be parents so we've got you know imagine (laughs) to sort of an analogy imagine if all of a sudden the military started recruiting people off the street to go to war and skipped basic training how many people would get killed by their own fellow soldiers because of fear and doing stupid things with weapons and explosives and whatever. So if we are dealing with a PTSD epidemic and we're still using dysfunctional models of thinking and educating and relating, the the, the healing has to start at the family unit because right. that's where it begins. Right. I mean, I, I would say far more PTSD comes out of families than it does outside the families. Agreed. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of football players with PTSD and there's a lot of skateboarders with it and there's a lot of motocross riders with it and there's a lot of boxers and kickboxers with it and there's a lot of car accident victims with it. But there's a lot more people that got PTSD from a traumatic family. Right. You know, and so we don't have manuals for parenting. We don't have manuals for preparing for childbirth. Hardly any, I've had to coach and counsel many young men in particular because they go into a case of psychological breakdown when they have a a new child Mm -hmm. and they realize how much their girlfriend or their wife has changed and how demanding it is and how much of an increase in responsibility it is for them to now be uh, expected to provide for three people, you know, partner mm-hmm. uh, and child and and most of these kids have not been parented or 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 fathered effectively so they don't know how to shoulder the responsibility of their sex organs and what comes out of that so you end up with people that weren't parented effectively and don't understand the responsibility or the ins and outs of the birthing process and so it's kind of like taking uh, an amateur boxer and throwing him in a gladiator match and saying good luck mm. but we're talking about everyday life here yeah so the point i'm making is the education's critical but you know the first words out of my mouth when i saw donald trump give two trillion dollars as a stimulus package i said one that's the worst thing you could have done because if we spent two trillion dollars educating people on the kinds of things we're talking about and basic health concepts we wouldn't ever have a covid pandemic of any type and if we did we'd heal very quickly from it and it wouldn't be a big deal but that you know people were all excited about the stimulus package i'm like uh you ever think about who's paying for that right that wasn't a gift yeah that wasn't a rescue you're gonna catch up on that later that that was a a loan yeah that will come with very high interest and it also encourages um, a lot of people, you remember about 75% of people hate their jobs. Mm-hmm. So if all of a sudden 
you're locked in your house and you're getting money handed to you and you're playing with your video games, you can easily fall into the sort of illness behavior syndrome where you think, wow, I don't have to, all I got to do is have COVID and someone's going to keep giving me money. And so my point is, is that we really have a complete need for a revolution of education and a revolution in health and many other revolutions, because if you add all these things together, we're approaching uh, a tipping point um, from which there's not a lot of positive outlook. <laughs> uh, well, that act in itself from Donald Trump, I mean, you, you look at that as a, from a parent perspective, right? Let's play imaginary games and say Donald Trump's daddy and where are all his children, and he's just gone, here's $2 trillion. Whether it has interest or not, is irrelevant is the fact that that act of providing something yeah. to the child yeah. to say, here you go, you are cared for, you are looked after. Yeah. You look at the modern household in today's day and age, like it takes, this This is what's frustrating and I'll put my hand up and say I, I am one of these hippie parents, but it takes uh, a very special parent to participate in a child's life actively mm-hmm. without just giving them an iPad to sit in front or a laptop yeah. to sit in front or go watch TV or here, have a packet of chips or here's some ice cream or, you know, all of that shit together. It's like we're not participating in a child's life, right? right? I, I, I say to my clients all the time, you want the best self-development book you can ever read? Read a parenting book, Yeah, right? I read this book, Discipline Without Damage. It absolutely changed the way I was as a father. Yeah. I have four children and you know this as a father, you're a different father to each of your children because yeah. they require different levels and we have a different contract with them as well mm-hmm. as a child and a father. But, you know, that book changed my life because I stepped out of the mold, out of the matrix, out of what my family was telling me to do, out of what society was telling me to do and I actually started focusing on, okay, this little human's going to be a big human one day. Mm-hmm. How do I want them to be in the world? What do yeah. I need to teach them right now yeah. so that they can start making the changes when they get older and I can start making those changes right now. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 that's where the, the change happens is at home. Yeah. It's very important. I'm curious, what are some statistics on the rates of PTSD in the world today? So we have over 800, 800,000 Australians experience PTSD every year. Uh, one in 13 Americans develop PTSD every year and then the percentage I found was this was the closest there was a few uh, across the board but um, the most reliable source that I I, I go to often is 3.6% of the world has been diagnosed with PTSD. What was the percentage of people that develop PTSD every year? In America? One out of 13. Okay so here's the thing that that statistic's not really revealing We've just talked about how ineffective the treatment approach is. Mm-hmm. We've also talked about the effect that PTSD can be in a cumulative process, mm-hmm. which we talked about comes from often from dysfunctional parenting and social challenges. And so if you got one in 13 people developing PTSD every year, but we don't have an effective system to treat it, it wouldn't take anybody that's skilled at math very long to say, well, if you magnify that by 10, 12, 15, 20 years, you're going to have a completely fucked up society. <laughs> Reduce the number of years. <laughs> you know, see, see yeah. here's the thing too, though. You know, 
traumatized parents traumatize their children. Right. Traumatized teacher traumatized their students. As we'll get into, traumatized uh, section chiefs or sergeants or leaders in the military traumatize everybody underneath them. Mm -hmm. And uh, traumatized uh, billionaires traumatize the whole world and traumatized medical doctors traumatize the world. I don't think here's here's the question, guys. Who am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Answer: Turn on your television for five minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, so so it's it's a, it's a pretty uh, serious problem. Well, they're saying you know if we're looking at it, one in thirteen people are medically diagnosed. Right. We're not talking about uh, another pandemic in itself. Is the other percentage of people that are identifying or relating? with it yes the idea of ptsd is a symptom to either gain financial benefit to gain reputation to gain social standing to gain identity in a family system or to get support where they are lacking connection lacking connection so we're cr creating all these compensatory behaviors simply by not understanding ourselves better or having a decent framework of education to provide to our people yeah to our civilization yeah well, you, you've had quite a potent um, personal journey, what I would classify as a hero's journey, you know, just to sort of lend some credibility to how you know so much about this and how you got into it. Why don't you go ahead and, and give us an overview of ultimately what led to you getting PTSD or realizing you had it, the challenges you faced and how you ultimately turn your nightmare into a dream that's now helping many people in common situations. So I served in the military for over a decade. Uh, I joined when I was very, very young. I, just before I was 17, I signed the papers to, to go in, and I left when I was 17, left home. Now, I'd been in and out of home from the age of 14. I'd moved away, and I had... Uh, gone to partake in a professional soccer career, um, which started my disassociation from the family system. I started to identify myself as an independent person and having this reality and how I was perceiving myself in my reality. And at this point, I imagine that this is where my personality grew into what it became for me in the military. Now, when I got into the military, I was young, I was super fit, I was cocky as all hell <laughs> you either liked me or you just didn't there was there was no real in between you know and I was a really good operator I was good at my job and um, I performed really well what was your job I got in as logistics so I was working in mm -hmm. aircraft spares in warehousing mm -hmm. and so we do everything from dispatch to stock taking to sending parts overseas mm -hmm. for all airframes mostly um, and so after about four years uh, doing that role, I quickly made a reputation for myself. I was in, in Australia, we call them a larrikin. So I was a bit of a larrikin. What's that mean? Like, like a young fella that like, you know, he's like kind of naughty, does, you know, rascal type things. We call them coyotes, <laughs> coyotes. or tricksters. <laughs> that was me. Yeah. And so I put a lot of people off guard, specifically higher uh, ranking and, you know, that was to a detriment and also a benefit because the challenges that I faced with relationships with higher staff, um, 
really offered a chance for me to develop, right? Because what they were seeing and what they were reporting on wasn't inaccurate. I was, I was being a shit, you know? Mm-hmm. I was still very, very good at what I did, yeah. but I was being a shit. And to that, I, I you know, um, I got the nickname Shit Magnet. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where, you know, my reputation actually started to affect me because mm-hmm. I was striving to join Special Forces and be an operator. Um, and so I knew that when I joined because my father was military, my grandfather was military, great-grandfather was military. And so I was joining a long line of men in my family who'd served their country. And to me, that was something that I wanted to strive for and be better mm-hmm. for. I wanted to do better than they did, mm-hmm. right? And it was very egoic. Now, my reputation grew into a point where it was affecting me personally and it started to show up in my relationships, in my marriage that I was in. I got married very, very early. I got married when I was uh, just 18. Actually, it was like a week after my 18th birthday, thereabouts. And so, I didn't even know myself as an individual, let alone in a serious, committed relationship. Well, I can harmonize with you there. My first wife got pregnant when she was 17, and I, we got married and we had our first child two weeks after I turned 18. So Life quickly tells you what's up. Yeah, you know, it was out of the frying pan and into the fire. Into the fire. And... and so what I didn't know and what I've accessed since then in my healing is that I was suffering. I was suffering as an individual because I'd skipped so many steps emotionally, right? Uh, when you join the military, you quickly become an adult because you're forced to become an adult. You're doing real world shit um, and you have a high level of responsibility in your role, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what that is. And punishment for not <laughs> doing the job, right? <laughs> Dude, I was, and it can be psychologically demanding punishment. <laughs> Believe me, I've seen a lot of it go down. Yeah, and and if look, if I wasn't punished, I was being threatened that I was going to be punished. Yeah, and so already my nervous system was on high alert. I was always looking beyond behind my shoulder and, and watching my own back. I didn't trust anyone. Pretended that I did, but never trusted anyone. Uh, further down the line, a couple of years after, I started training to join. The, to go to selection for special forces, right? So I committed a whole 12 months where I pushed my body to its physical and emotional limits. I remember laying in the bush one night. Uh, I was on an overnight nav and and I was, you know, I was just lost. I was so empty because I had been drained emotionally of where I was in life and physically I was pretty fatigued. I was doing, you know, upwards of 50 kilometer pack marches with 75 kilos plus simulated weapon and water um, through mountainous terrain and, you know, the first time I applied for selection and, and went through the process and I didn't get accepted, I was, I was pretty heartbroken. You know, my yeah. world crushed me, mm-hmm. you know, um, because that's what I was identifying with. That's what I was going to be. I started to, um, you know, arrive in my reality as a special forces operator, even though I wasn't one. I knew that I have to just shift the way that I was mm-hmm. in order to become that. Mm-hmm. Now, I went back to the unit and as you can imagine, I was like fully resenting the unit I was at, my job. I didn't want to be there. I hated it. I became an obstructionist, you know, still really good at what I did. And I always looked out for the squadron and my squadron peers. Um, But 
what I was putting out was what also what I was drawing in as mm-hmm. well, you yeah. know. And because I had negative energy towards my work, I was drawing that in for my peers. Now I was very unfortunate and fortunate to arrive under the um, under the guidance of a superior that just did not like me, no matter what I did. Mm-hmm. All right? And uh, I was bullied uh, by this person for, I would say, the better half of two years. Right, and uh, to the point where this person had started to recruit more higher superior, and my colleagues, who uh, one was one of my best friends at the time, um, this person had got promoted above me. Uh, he had a really good report, and uh, they they started to like kind of gang bully me. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm not saying I'll take full ownership and responsibility of my actions because I was a shithead. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I wasn't prepared to handle such ferocity and resistance. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I went through this for two years, uh, uh, to which I decided to go back for selection again. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, uh, I got injured, uh, really, really injured through my process. And uh, I returned and said, I'm not doing this again. I was like having suicidal thoughts. I was partying, taking lots of drugs. I was drinking heavily. Um, I reached out to support uh, for support in my system and it wasn't understood what I was going through. And so the intensity of it wasn't received that way. And so it was like, hey, we'll just take you down here and we'll, you know, we'll get you to see the base psychologist. And uh, that journey uh, didn't eventuate successfully for me. Mm-hmm. I really had to go through the shit to mm-hmm. find myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what your soul needed you to do. It definitely was at that time, Paul. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was the pain doctor I needed at the time. Yeah. Um, and so reflecting on that, I chose to take a different path and I went and applied to become a PTI or physical training instructor. Right. This role is mostly in the Commonwealth. It's not in the States uh, nor any of the other countries this side, but the role is essentially a strength and conditioning coach in the military for the military. Yes. When you become a PDI, you start to specialize in different areas of health and fitness Mm -hmm. and you become that specialist to the unit as that. Mm -hmm. Uh, My specialist, I ended up training uh, the security forces, the dog handlers, and I created a very comprehensive strength and conditioning rehabilitation platform for them where we're experiencing high volume of injuries due to, you know, long hours of like pulling tension from guiding dogs and just some of the roles that they were partaking in, they were starting to experience a high amount of injury. And so my role was to mitigate the risk of that getting worse and start strengthening the new people coming through. Hi, everyone. Please raise your hand if you enjoy having dried out, aged-looking skin, wrinkled skin, acne, skin blemishes that make you look unhealthy, or skin that itches from lack of supportive nutrients. No hands? Just what I expected. You know, even though I'm a 60-year-old man, I still want healthy skin because looking good helps me feel good too. Our skin is a living barrier that protects us from the sun, the elements, and a myriad of invasive organisms that try to enter us through our skin. Anyone that understands skin knows that good complexion begins on the inside, and that's exactly why Organifi created Organifi Glow, so you and your family can be healthy, stay young, and feel and look great from the inside out. My family and I love Organifi Glow, and so does our skin. This refreshing blend of organic nutrients not only tastes great, it supports your body's innate collagen production and promotes brighter, radiant skin. 
Boost your hydration and nourish your skin with 13 clinically studied superfoods. And unlike most companies that claim to be organic, Organifi does use certified organic nutrients and has been the only company that could show me their certifications upon request. Organifi Glow supports and promotes collagen synthesis so you regenerate beautiful skin naturally, supports and promotes hydration, nourishes your skin from the inside out by optimizing skin hydration. Organifi Glow includes Tremella Mushroom, which provides five times the moisture of hyaluronic acid, which is commonly used in skin products to increase moisture. Organifi Glow offers a delicious raspberry lemonade taste, but unlike most plant-based products, is certified to be free of glyphosate, which is extremely important today. It also includes plant-based collagen from bamboo, which is a very rare ingredient because most collagen is animal-based. Not only that, Organifi Glow includes bioavailable vitamin C from Acerola Cherry with all its natural cofactors that support absorption and supports your immune system at the same time. Additionally, it's important to remember that your skin is often a reflection of your gut health. The collagen and prebiotic fiber in Organifi Glow has been shown to improve gut health by repairing the gut lining and feeding healthy bacteria in our microbiome, so not just your skin, but your whole body gets nourished. To get your Organifi Glow and love your skin, go to Organifi.com forward slash check 20. And I'll even make it better. All Living 4D listeners get 20% off when they use the promo code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. So your promo code is CHECK20, all in caps. Enjoy Organifi Glow. We love it. I love it. And I know you will too. Uh, and so I became this PDI, I assumed the identity, and uh, my career started to be, okay, tolerable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not, however, uh, emotionally stable. I had a lot of repressed uh, anger, rage, shame even because, you know, I'd, I'd gone through this journey of uh, being, you know, addicted to, you know, um, being addicted to trouble, being addicted to resentment, being addicted to pain and shame and putting myself in, in that environment. We talked about that at the beginning, looking for it if I wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. This showed up in my relationship, showed up in my work. Um, there was a few more incidents that occurred in my time. One specifically was when I uh, come in on somebody who was trying to take their own life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a student of mine. Um still with us i was able to you know uh respond to that situation adequately and i was able to resolve this situation and actually uh spent a lot of time with them uh in integration after that and and i feel at this stage the healing was for both of us mm. you know um in me as the facilitator and them as as the person needing healing and and that really started to shift uh what I was experiencing in terms of blockages, like emotional blockages and energy blockages. And I started to see a lot of injuries come through. I had a lot of imbalances because my body was creating compensatory behaviors as a result of these trapped emotions Mm -hmm. starting to manifest physically. I was playing uh, soccer at the time for a local club down home and uh, I got severely injured, uh, like really injured. I had three broken ribs and a torn left hamstring. Now I was... Uh, required to be at work because I was the only one in my section. We had small sections as PDIs. I was one of, 
four at that time. Uh, one was a sergeant and then three corporals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two other corporals were away. One was deployed. One was away somewhere else. And then my sergeant was away as well. Now, uh, my sergeant and I uh, had an uncomfortable relationship. I did, I did my duty and I tried to do it to the best of my ability. And I obeyed orders because that's what you do in the military. Um, but there was no respect from me to him or him to me. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship was very present. Mm-hmm. Um, that built over time. And uh, once again, that bullying started to come back into my career in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I got isolated and target tested for uh, steroids to which I was taking um, peptides at that time to heal my injuries because I was, uh, I was really struggling at work. My role was to be physically fit mm-hmm. and be able to take people through training and physical assessments. And I couldn't do that with broken ribs or a torn hamstring. Yeah. Um, and so I was taking a peptide to heal these ailments and um, I got isolated, got targeted by my sergeant, found positive, uh, and then I went through two months of extensive investigation to which I was consistently bullied through that as well, threatened. There was a whole lot of stuff that went on there. I elected to discharge and right before I did that, I was actually afforded the opportunity to go and talk with my high command officer, the one who ran the squadron, pulled me in, hats were off, it was a personal conversation, kind of mate-to-mate type situation and I was uh, offered the opportunity to uh, be medically discharged. Now, because I was so thorough with recording all of my medical issues throughout my career, um, I actually had an extensive list of medical ailments that I was leaving the military with, to which I was medically discharged. Um, Before I left the military, I went on a holiday, and this was what tipped tipped the cup. This is what overflowed the cup. Um, I went on a holiday with my wife, my, my new wife, who I'd met on my my last deployment to the Middle East. Uh, she's American military or was American, American military. Uh, and we went to the Caribbean on a cruise with her family. We're in Tulum on this beach. And uh, my brother-in-law was in the water as I was going in to get more drinks for everyone. As I'm going in, he starts yelling at me and he's telling me to come down. He's got my nephew in one arm and then he has this guy who is, dead in his other arm, dragging him up the beach. I go down, retrieve this gentleman, drag him up the beach, and we start working on him. Um, we remove the kids and big commotion. Everybody comes around, work on this guy for at least 15 minutes until I do a handover with uh, an ER nurse that was present on the beach as well. She takes over. We get the, the ER from the, the island or the, the city to come and retrieve this guy and take him to the, the hospital. And he gets taken away. He died. He was dead when I had him or when I was working on him, but he died. This was the moment where everything come to a culminating point for me, right? Like this was something that I was not conditioned to deal with Mm -hmm. because why would I, right? I responded in a way because I was trained to a point to know how to respond. Countless first aid courses to stay current in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd had the incident with you know, um, alleviating the situation where I found that student trying to take their own life, trying to hang themselves. We also had someone while I was deployed as well in the Middle East trying to do the same thing to which I was still in that in that environment as well, participating. And so I was not conditioned to be a part of this situation. And so I responded accordingly, but I chose chose not to 
deal with it or process it, try to push it down. To me, I felt weak because I was having these feelings of emotion. I felt so sad. Mm-hmm. I felt so scared. Mm-hmm. I felt like I just felt empty, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I chose not to process these these situations and it had all come to a point. Bullying, missing out on selection and doing the, the job I'd entered the military to do. I did over a decade in the military. I put up with so much shit. Yeah, I brought a lot of it on myself. But at some point, you know, it's a 50-50 split in the relationship. You know, some each person's playing a role. And I didn't call all of it in. It was that. There was the three circumstances to where I was, I was dealing with dead bodies. Now, when I left, um, I got out and my wife had just moved to Australia. And she left the American military, sold her house, gave her cats away, sold her car, moved in with me. I just left the military, didn't have a job, no uh, financial support. Um, My previous wife had just deployed. I had both my daughters. So my new wife was stepping into motherhood straight away, not knowing what to do. I was unemployed, new relationship, going through a divorce, had the children, going through my own process, completely stressed. Shell of a man was not providing as I was taught to provide as a man mm-hmm. or my idea of how I was supposed mm-hmm. to provide as a man. Long story cut short, I started a few businesses. Uh, I found my feeding footing. I, I, got, uh, I got jobs, you know, I had money to, to support my family and I got through that. But there was an episode where um, our good friend Mike Bledsoe was talking to somebody about ayahuasca. Mm. I'd heard Aubrey talk about it. I'd heard Mike talk about it and it like kind of passing. I was just fresh out of the military. Plant medicines wasn't a thing to me, mm-hmm. you know. And so when I'd heard this final episode, I went home and I said to my wife, I said, babe, I'm, I'm going to do some research on this plant medicine ayahuasca and I'm going to, um, you know, search for a way to go and sit in a ceremony. <laughs> Divine intervention, the job I was in, presented me with the person who needed to show me the connection. <laughs> Within a month's time, I was sitting in my first ayahuasca mm. ceremony in Australia, uh, and it changed my life. Yeah. It, changed, it changed the lens I looked through. It changed my life. It didn't heal me. Mm. It changed the way I saw myself in my own reality. Mm-hmm. It gave me permission to feel love and compassion for myself no matter what I was or what I was perceiving myself to be. Outside of my family systems, my social systems, that's what it gave me. At my first ayahuasca ceremony, um, and just to backtrack a little, when I left, I went through over 25 hours of MRIs, CT scans, blood scans, bone scans, countless hours of psychiatric care um, to try and get support from the VA. Same old story. I, I, I imagine you can guess what, what happened at the end of that. I didn't get support. Um, or I did intermittently, and then they said, we're not going to support you. Um, but I had an extensive list of both mental health conditions that they were diagnosing me with and physical conditions included but not limited to osseo and rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. Right? They, were the, they were the major compounding physical ailments I had. PTSD, bipolar, major depressive disorder were the top mental uh, condition or uh, mental health conditions I had. Now... At this ayahuasca ceremony, I was coming out of the first night and uh, I was going to sit in the grass and a friend of mine was sitting out there and he was doing this breathwork thing. And he says, hey, man, you want to come do some breathwork? I was like, you know what? F- fuck it. Yeah, let's let's do it. You know, he just finished um, DMTs. So I hit a DMT and he brought me in. 
And the breath work was more powerful than the night I just sat with grandmother. Mm. Right. And mm. so it opened up more of me to what I now know, all the purging that I'd done the night before allowed enough tissue to release enough information that I had access to more information now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the breath work took me to that space. It took me to a non-ordinary state where I could start to access different levels of my consciousness and all the things that had happened to me, all the things that were happening for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew in that moment, this is it. You know, I'm going to go learn about this thing, about this practice of breath. And then the, the next five years, I spent every single penny I had. You ask my wife, she's still a bit, you know, upset about it all. <laughs> I spent every penny I had, every waking hour I had. I sought out the best in the world and I went and knocked on their door and said, hey, teach me, you know. I went and practiced it. I practice in group settings, one-to-one, retreat spaces. And what I learned was my journey that I'd just gone through Everybody's doing it. Mm-hmm. Every single day, everybody is going through that journey in their own way, mm-hmm. you know. And so, to me, it was it was a no-brainer. My soul had brought me to this space to come back and be of service to the world to pass this education on. Mm-hmm. And I committed myself to that. And I haven't stopped. Yeah. I'm, I'm still going, you know. I In that five years, I healed my body physically and emotionally through breath work. There are a lot of other elements, food, movement, sex, social setting. Guys, this is the big one. If there are people in your life that are not filling your cup and taking away, take them out of your life, Mm. even if it's just for a moment, right? Mm. That was a big one for me. Um, You mean toxic relationships. Toxic relationships. People that just aren't supportive and are drainers, energy drainers. and Projectors. Vampires. Oh, energy vampires, you know. And oftentimes, unfortunately, they're family members. Often. And that's where we get to learn compassion because they've not necessarily been taught or know either. Yeah. And and they are difficult conversations to have with family. They're very difficult conversations to have because the version of you that is presenting yourself to the family now is not the version they know. And they need you to be the version that they know. That's comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. But if you're not that version, it's very discomforting. <clears throat> yeah. But it's out of alignment for you if you're not this version of you, the true authentic version or expression of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so... I put this this protocol, this practice to work. It's not the fix. It's a vehicle. I said this to you before. Like breathwork is the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Understanding the nervous system is what got me over the hump to understand my body and my soul. Mm-hmm. And from that point, I was able to heal myself physically and emotionally and be able to provide this work forward. Now, am I fully healed? I would suggest not. I am always learning and I'm an iteration every single day. Mm-hmm. But every single day I wake up and I'm alive and I realize that, oh, shit, I got another day. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a gift. Well, you also know you have tools to work with. I mean, you know, if you're a woman stranded on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and you don't know how to change a flat tire or fix an engine, it's pretty scary. But if you've got mechanical skills and you say, well, this is a pain in the ass. I'm about to get wet in the rain, but I can change the tire or I can you know, find out why fuel's not getting into the engine or something, then it's, it's you know, you've got tools so you don't feel disabled or incapacitated. It's more of just something you got to deal with. But unfortunately, 
the, the entire medical system and education system we have really doesn't give us tools. It creates codependent people that mm-hmm. always have to spend money on somebody else to rescue them, which usually isn't really a rescue. It's some kind of a, a cover-up of the symptoms, you know, like if you're depressed, well, here, take this pill. <laughs> you won't be depressed anymore. But right. what they don't tell you is you won't have a mind either. <laughs> That's exactly right. And then the, the root cause will still be there yeah, oh yeah. when you come back. Yeah. Sometimes I'm in a hurry and in a hurry between engagements, lunch, or dinner, and dinner won't be ready for a while. So I just want to eat something delicious that's quick and easy. And that is when I say, thank God for Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley has extremely high standards and only uses the highest quality, cleanest sources for their animal and plant food products. And they have excellent jerky meats neatly packaged so you can take them anywhere and never be stuck without something great to feed your beautiful body and stabilize your mind. I love their pasture-raised turkey sticks in the original and cranberry orange flavor. Angie, Penny, and the kids absolutely love their grass-fed beef sticks, which come in jalapeno summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, teriyaki, and original flavors. I can assure you Paleo Valley's meat sticks are so good you could literally make a meal of them or have them as snacks and you'd feel satisfied and satiated and know you've fed your body top-quality nutrition that will make your cells dance for joy. Yoo-hoo! Paleo Valley has lots of other great additions to meet your food and nutrition needs, and their website is loaded with great articles, podcasts, recipes, and more. Go to www.paleovalley.com to get your 15% Living 4D discount. Use the code CHECK15, all small case, C-H-E-K-15 on checkout. The whole family will be satiated, nourished, and glad you did. One of the projects I'm working on at the moment as a way to demonstrate, because people question me all the time about this, I've, I've had countless inboxes of hate mail telling me, you know, you know, you didn't see battle, so you don't have PTSD and, mm. you know, what you're saying is false and black magic and hippie and it's bullshit and, mm. you know, one of the projects I'm working on to demonstrate. That's the sound of their pain talking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the mirror they don't like looking into. Yeah. Um, when I when I left my medical, uh, my final medical assessment where I got the piece of paper to say who I was supposed to be as a medical identity, um, the the last response I got from the specialist who was one of the best treating specialists in Australia at that time uh, in the military was, uh, you're going to be in a wheelchair by 35. I hope you know that. Mm. And I said, okay. Meanwhile, I'm like, no, the fuck I'm not. Mm. No, I'm not. And the fire in me, my soul, was like, you're not. You're going to heal your body and then you're going to show everybody how to do it themselves because they Mm -hmm. know how to do it. And so one of the projects I'm working on is I'm about to run across Australia to Mm. demonstrate. I'm 34 in September, 7th of September, and that is the day I will leave Margaret River to start running 88 ultra marathons consecutively to get to Byron Bay Mm -hmm. because my body can do that Mm -hmm. because I've been able to heal it. Yeah. And I do that now today. Like I have long runs and I come back and I'm straight into my recovery. Mm. I'm into my breath. Mm. I'm into my meditation. I'm into non-inflammatory foods. Well, I hope you're doing the breathing and the meditation while you're running. Always. I, I have a metronome that I listen to because I can get in some 
pretty deep states of consciousness when mm-hmm. I'm running and I forget about my body mm-hmm. and I'm like kind of astral traveling with my body. Yeah. And so the metronome keeps my foot in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really, and now I use music as well. I use music with the beat to, mm-hmm. to get my metronome on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful tool to utilize and it's a long journey. It's not something that happens overnight. No real healing is. At all. If, if it wasn't that way, we wouldn't grow from it. Right. You know, pain, you, you've heard me use the term the pain teacher, which I created to show that when pain comes into your life, it's because there's something that you've come to learn and either you've been avoiding the lesson, mm-hmm. so the soul says, okay, we're going to give you yourself now. You have to deal with the consequences of what you're creating mm-hmm. so you can take stock of what you're using your God-given creative power to create. I think one of the challenges that we have worldwide, uh, not only as, as a people, but also due to what's called the negative bias of the nervous system, which is to look for threats in the environment because we evolved in a dangerous environment, is that people tend to... Um, orient themselves towards what's wrong with themselves or what's Mm. wrong with their life um, because the nervous system's oriented toward the negative. And look, you know, everybody knows bad news sells. You mean, how many times have you turned on the news to see a celebration of so-and-so giving birth or someone turning a hundred that's still able to exercise or, you know, any of the million things that we could see to give a positive um, inspirational message to the world, but no, it's just death, destruction, and you know, lock your house. The devil's coming. Buy this product, or you're going to die. And everybody's got this disease, this virus, whatever. It's just endless, right? So it's it's actually a, a challenging situation because biologically we're oriented toward threats. And then we're programmed from the very beginning of our life to be concerned about what concerns our parents. Mm -hmm. And they're just the apple that fell off the same tree that their parents were on. And so you end up getting enculturated into a psychological orientation towards what is wrong. Um, And, you know, if you look at Angelis Arians for primary causes of addiction. I'll see if I can remember them all. But she traveled the world. She she was an amazing shaman and an anthropologist. And she traveled to, I think, over 110 countries, speaking to the elders, speaking to medical professionals, and speaking to addicted people, doing interviews to see what they thought was the cause of addiction. And she did this for 10 years, and then she tabulated her data and she identified there was four common denominators that lead to addiction. One of them is focusing on what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Two is perfectionism. Three is being raised in a family that has provides an intense environment. Four is the need to know. Mm. And we're raised in schools where we are praised for and rewarded for being good at memorizing other people's books has nothing to do with our actual learning ability, but we are taught that the more we can know and mm. regurgitate, the more love we get, the more special we are, and the easier our life is, and the better the grades you get. Right. 
So we get addicted to learning because it gives us a sense of self and it gives us a sense that we're wanted, needed, and valued. We are raised in environments where our parents and society constantly focuses on what's wrong. We have a lot of religious programming that we must be perfect or we are not accepted by Jesus or God. Mm -hmm. And many of us are raised in very intense family environments like I was, or we have the television running, filling the house with the bad news hour, or we're in school and maybe we are athletic and we have a kinesthetic learning style, but 95 to 98% of all education imparted in schools from kindergarten all the way to the highest levels of university comes by way of the mathematical logical learning style, but only 5 to 8% of people in the world learn well that way. So all these kids are indoctrinated into a school system, which 95% of them are not equipped to learn that way, so they're constantly measuring themselves against the kids that are natural at mathematical logical learning. So if you get a kinesthetic learner, an audio dominant learner, or a visual dominant learner, or someone who's musically inclined, or uh, Howard Gardner's now identified, I think, eight or nine different primary learning styles, but 95 to 98% of our education comes through the mathematical logical learning style, which is reading and memorization. I couldn't read for shit when I was a kid. I failed reading. I had to go to summer school. I hated reading. I never read a book till I was 22. (laughs) Now look. Well, (laughs) well, you know, I I cured myself. (laughs) You know, know, what I narrowed that down to is I didn't like being told to read things that weren't interesting to me. Yep. But when I found things that were interesting to me, I could focus on it because I felt that there was some benefit to be gained. But my point is like, you get paradoxically the greatest athletes, the greatest musicians, and and the people that have the greatest potential to fulfill their soul in almost any arena, and 95% of them are then brought into an education system where they can't learn that way. Right. And some kid says, I'm going to be a musician when I grow up. And people say, oh, you never make a living doing that. You got to go be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or something respectable. Yet we're surrounded by, you know, musicians that range from unsuccessful financially, but happy as a human being because they're doing what they love to do to the Michael Jacksons of the world. You know, And, and so my point is when you look at those four causes of addiction, they're just everywhere. Yeah. And so, if you look at what you've been sharing about PTSD and how it develops, those four causes of addiction are repeated stressors, mm. and the addiction is the attempt to medicate the very issues that you're showing culminate in a PTSD profile. And we're medicating the symptoms. And we're right? medicating the symptoms, and they've made that uh, the, one of the most profitable industries in the world. And, com- yeah, they've convinced that, like... Yeah, to that point. Uh, Which has now become government. Yeah. Rather, and, really, we're, and we're not going to bite the hand that feeds us. And that person's just convinced us that the cage we're trapped in is a safe space to be in, right? This is the, the oscillating cycle of being caught in the loop. You'll own nothing and be happy. And be happy. Right. That's the and trauma. And you know what my loop. response to that is? 
you first. <laughs> Show me what it looks like. Give me your airplane. Be white in a wall. <laughs> Give me your your jewels and your gems and your your everything that your mountain of riches you've sit on over there that you took from everybody else. And let's see how you do in that cage. Exactly. And when you're the little cage monkey, and oh by the way, you need to take all the vaccinations you're making everybody else take too. <laughs> the ones you own. Yes. Make money from. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It starts at. You know, it starts there at childhood in that system, whether it's school, whether it's at home, this pass fail, this good, bad, you know, even athletes still, everything's external from us. This trauma or this symptomatic medication is coming from an external gratification and not knowing what is actually occurring inside of us or listening to the eye itself. Yeah. You know, what what I'm hearing and what I've known, because, you know, I've been dealing with PTSD people for a very long time and and had to heal myself from it and have a family uh, and uh, a lot of people in my family and in my life have have suffered from these kinds of traumas. But it seems to me that you talked about toxic relationships and the importance of identifying which relationships are not really helping you grow or heal it it seems to me that tribe becomes essential to healing Mm -hmm. what tips do you have for people that feel isolated alone segregated or maybe are in a compromised position because their views on god or their views on religion in general or their views on science or their views on medicine and and vaccination puts them in isolation from the people that ultimately they normally need to connect to to be part of a family or a social unit because that's important for our psyche we're social animals how do you suggest people go about creating their own tribe or extended family so that they can be with people that are supportive and are mutually supportive because a lot of people this boils down to a complex issue and the complex issue is it's very well known in psychology i've actually seen investigations by psychologists saying that the average person in the world today only has about the psychological development of a 12-year-old, which means that people with that level of psychological development, no matter what age they are, are utterly dependent upon people outside of themselves for the sense of validation, safety, love, connection, and a sense of belonging, Uh right? Which are really the foundation of our sense of ourself. So, when it comes to maturing into your own viewpoints where maybe you don't agree with your mother and father on things about money, sex, uh, parenting, parenting, vaccination, medical approaches, and a long list of stuff today. Uh, if you're not ready to go on your own, but you don't know how to create tribe, you can actually find yourself depressed. Oh yeah. First, very anxious and then depressed. And I think personally, that's part of the reason we have so much suicide today is because people really feel there's nobody that they can relate to. There's nobody that understands them or there's no um, place for them to go to feel love and support. 
Um, I'm just curious, did you go through having to build your own tribe and sort of recreate your um, social circle so you fit in? And, and if you did, how did you do it? And what are your suggestions for other people? Uh, because I, I mean, don't you agree that this is important for healing? Yeah, hundred percent. That that point right there of finding tribe outside of where you currently are—that's mm-hmm. the piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Because it'd be like saying it'd be taking a a true avid, you know, COVID believer, someone, someone fully, you know, um, trusting the system, believing everything that's put through the media generalizing now but it'd be like taking someone like that and they said okay i don't really i don't really want to believe in this anymore and then trying to guide them to the next place they got no idea where to go mm-hmm. they don't even know who they can trust mm-hmm. it's the same situation coming out of a traumatic um cycle of life yeah know? or out of a cult out of a cult right mm-hmm. a brainwashed cult now in my experience more recently i I do a lot of work with veterans Um, i'm doing some beautiful work uh with an organization called warrior angels foundation and it's headed up by two beautiful brothers brothers of mine uh andrew ma and adam ma Mm -hmm. both uh, veterans themselves and what they've done is create a space uh for veterans who are experiencing trauma of all different levels to come and feel part of a tribe that has that energy and that environment of what we come from, that identity we left of being military, but it's not that anymore, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the struggle, the shift in identity. Mm-hmm. In my experience, veterans and non-veterans, people suffer in their environments to trust or find tribe because what their su- the support network they have currently is related to the trauma they're experiencing, mm-hmm. whether it be parents, partners, friends, it's related to the trauma. I was very fortunate. Most of my friends when I left the military stopped talking to me. Oh. <laughs> I was very fortunate. <laughs> uh-uh. So, uh, and, and mind you, I'd left a marriage that I was in for 11 years. So we had collective friends together and, um, you know, I stopped communicating with a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. And that was a blessing because I was – I was put into a position where I needed to find me first and then I needed to find my tribe. Mm-hmm. You, If you don't find yourself first, then you don't know who your tribe is. You're going to carry that baggage from the last life mm-hmm. into the new life and you're going to project yourself or what you're perceived to be onto the new tribe. And when you do find a new tribe, they'll get rid of you because straight away they just tried to get rid of <laughs> Those types of relationships. They'll see right through you. you know? yeah. And that's how you'll know when you find your tribe is that they accept you, your fully expressed version of you. They will pull you in and they will, they'll hold you, right? They'll mm-hmm. hold the space. Now, I did go through that process. Yes, definitely. I, I actually had childhood friends come back into my life that I hadn't spoken to for years and just magically appeared. And guess what they appeared on? The subject of plant medicine. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes. What a a coincidence. We've all found the medicine chest. (laughs) Many of you are aware of the importance of magnesium, but very few are aware that most of the magnesium products out there are not high quality and seldom do what they say they'll do on the bottle or the package. But Bioptimizers has produced the most comprehensive magnesium breakthrough product 
on the market. And I've got Wade here to tell us a little bit about it. Wade, what makes your magnesium breakthrough product so unique? Well, I think because we combine a variety of magnesiums. In fact, we use seven different types. So if you look at all the research papers out there, you'll see that they'll use various magnesiums, whether it's orotate, malate, you know, sucrosomial is a hot one that's just come out recently. And they're rated on bioavailability. But the biggest component that a lot of people don't understand with magnesium is that different types of magnesium are uptaken by different parts of the body or different organs, some in your brain, some in your nervous system, some are vasodilators. And so there's a variance in people's responses depending on what they need magnesium for. So we went out to try and solve this problem by combining all seven of the best magnesiums into one single capsule, which was very difficult because number one, the bonding size was different. The nozzles for the machines wouldn't work. We don't use any fillers or uh, chemical uh, excipients, the flow regulators. And then we got them in the caps and the caps rose. We had to do special aid caps. But when we solved all those problems and turned it out for ourselves because we were tired of buying and I had a whole counter full of magnesiums. Well, guess what? A lot of people said this was the best magnesium product they've ever taken. And after being in this business for 18 years, it's quickly moved to our number one selling product in Bioptimizer history. What are just two or three things that magnesium is really supportive of? I know sleep challenges is one of them. What are some of the other key issues? Well, it acts as a down regulator for your nervous system to kind of help you relax and go into, you know, out of fight or flight. And that's the biggest factor, especially today in a, in a high blue light electromagnetic frequency world that we find ourselves in a high stimulus environment. It's also critical for vasodilation and vasodilation increases blood flow. And many times when we are suffering from a variety of pain or conditions in the body, it's because we're not getting oxygen in or toxins out of those tissues. And you've written a lot about it in your work. And so magnesium breakthrough, because it's so powerful and not available uh, in most North American diets because of what we've done with farming. Uh, it's a great way to augment your diet and it's easy to get. You go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com or magbreakthrough.com slash living4d. You can get a 10% discount and it's a money back guarantee. If it's not the best magnesium you've ever taken, you get your money back. Mag, M-A-G, breakthrough.com, magbreakthrough.com forward slash living4d. And is there a discount for the listeners? 10% all for all right. the listeners. All right. Give it a go, you guys. Everything I use from Bioptimizers is the best I've ever used. That's why I love Wade and Bioptimizers. So you've heard how it's made, why it's made, and how it works. If you want the best, go get it. By the way, for those of you, especially young people listening, don't get it in your mind that all you got to do is an ayahuasca journey. Everything will be all right. Because the long list of people that got PTSD from using too much or too big a dose has come to my doorstep is significant. And it's we've kind of opened Pandora's box. Oh, yeah. And, you know, plant medicines are like guns. They can keep you safe and they can feed you. Yeah. But they can also get you killed. Yeah, that's right. I've known six people, seven people to die messing around with plant medicines. It's a growing trend right now. And, yeah. and when I, like when I say to that story, I found, you know, old, 
childhood friends who I grew up playing soccer with, went to school with, come back into my life because of plant medicines. It was because we were doing the work. We were healing ourselves. Yeah. And we just happened to find ourselves in that work. Yeah. Now, in that, mine led me to education. I started to develop myself as a master breathwork practitioner. I found myself in a different country meeting different people and one of those people just happened to be part of my soul pod. And then that person mm. invited me to this space and then I found the rest of my soul pod. Mm. Now in that, to be more to the point of creating the environment, you know, or, or what we're looking for, what I can suggest in finding your tribe is, and it's very difficult to just come out and say, hey, go talk to somebody. Or go find somebody that you don't know that you can, you know, ask questions. It's very hard to just suggest that, right? Because uh, it's, to me, it's been divine intervention, right? Great spirit has come and said, hey, Will, this is the person you need to meet. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I think that's there for all of us if we're open to it. That's right. And if if our views are being challenged and we're taking a moment to really consider how we feel about our views being challenged, I would assert that you're on the path or at least about to start walking the path. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're creating in this environment, um, it's it's here in the States actually. After my run across Australia, I'll be coming back to do deeper work um, with the foundation, is we're creating an environment for humans to disconnect from the matrix, right? We're going to be utilizing nutrition, movement, breath work, medicines, guided by professional practitioners, a space of community and tribe, right? Because we need that space to disconnect away from society, away mm-hmm. from media, on the land, on organic land, mm-hmm. learning how to grow vegetables, how to hunt properly in a ceremonial and reverent way, mm-hmm. right? We're creating this space for people to come and do the healing in those spaces. Mm-hmm. What I've experienced outside of this container and more towards uh, the one-on-one work and the group work that I've done um, from a therapeutic sense is people are having the deepest healings with absolute strangers. Mm. I don't know how many times I've been in a room full of absolute strangers and three days later, we're all in a cuddle puddle telling each other how much we love each other and truly meaning it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's um, sympathetic resonance that goes mm-hmm. on throughout the entire universe. And yep. so I think you, you got to remember the ego is only about 3 to 5% of our consciousness. Some books say as much as 7 but the rest of us is unconscious. Mm-hmm. And the unconscious is, is um, the global internet right. of self. And so when we have an authentic need within our soul, we're actually sending messages out to other souls that can converge with us for the common good. Mm -hmm. So things that look like um, strange occurrences, like a bunch of people that don't know each other ending up in a cuddle puddle, as you say, isn't really that random when you really understand the functioning of the psyche and i think that really helps go back to this issue of how do you find your tribe i think the first thing you got to do is get clear what values serve you now in your life for example if you decide that you don't want to eat shit food anymore and you want to eat organically grown food and put your money into regenerative farming so that your purchase is actually benefiting the planet 
or you want to learn about breathing, or you want to learn more about mental, emotional self-management, then right away you say, I wonder who else is interested yeah. in this stuff. And so you go looking for people that have what is called, what I call alignment of values and interests. Mm -hmm. And birds of a feather start flocking, flocking together. together and, and then you share ideas and you grow. And that's what really what how the human being grew into this social animal and how we got to the point where we can build rocket ships and telescopes and all sorts of stuff. Nobody does anything meaningful on this planet alone. Nobody. Got Mahatma Gandhi may have looked like he took the country back, but he had to teach the entire country of India how to engage the British nonviolently. Right. So he couldn't have done it alone mm. because if they all got out guns and sticks and started a war, they'd still be in the war. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so I'm, I'm I'm looping back to the issue of tribe because one of the most important ways to find tribe is say what are the values that I choose to live by, and who are the people that share those values because it's easier to live by those values with people that already do it. That's right. And what are the things that interest me? You know, that's I think that's how that's the keys to the door of your new tribe. If you go down, this is for anyone, you go down to a local farmer's market, like a, a genuine farmer's market. We've got lots of them around here. I guarantee you'll meet somebody who's going to be in your tribe. Oh, yeah. Right? Like you're, you're following a point. Food's a great one, right? Mm -hmm. Food's a great one. If you decide you want to kick sugar, fantastic. When you decide you want to kick sugar, you've actually got to go looking for food that doesn't have sugar. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to find that? Well, you're not going to find it. At the supermarket. At the supermarket. I mean, out in Australia, it's much more accessible. Here in the States, not as much. I mean, you've got um, sprouts and whatever. Whole the, foods. Whole food. You've got those a things. A number of them. Most then, of those are just better junk, unfortunately. They're the lesser of two evils, yeah, yeah. right? But if you find a farmer's market where the farmer himself is standing there selling his own meat, telling mm. you how the cows have lived and died and you've got the person there who's pulled the beets from the ground and told you what they've used mm -hmm. i guarantee you when you start looking for that you'll start to find those people yeah it's the same with when you want to lose weight but you don't want to go to the gym so you get a trainer but you don't want to do that style of exercise or you don't want to do crossfit so you look for something a little different oh there's someone over there teaching a mace that looks interesting go talk to them they're doing this unconventional way of training mm -hmm. well people who else are doing that are very similar to the values that you are now learning mm -hmm. that you want to discover. Yeah. And for me, I mean, breathwork was it, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I found breathwork in my own, in my own journey. And then when I decided to invest in education, well, some of it was one-on-one -on -one, definitely, but in the group setting, when I was learning breathwork, I found there was more people who were trying to understand the same things as me. Yeah. You know? That's, that's important. Um, one of the things that I think is important about breathwork, aside from the fact that it's non-toxic, it doesn't cost anything and you can control it, is that it is really a vehicle by which you learn that you can affect your own physiology and your own mental emotional state. Mm -hmm. And because you're in control, as you use breathwork to grow and heal yourself, you actually begin to cohere into a sense of true self mm -hmm. you realize i am capable of i have a tool i can use and this tool not only helps me but it can help other people 
If I am too wound up, I know how to do this to calm myself down. If I'm feeling lethargic or or um, I'm having a hard time motivating or inspiring myself, then I can stimulate my sympathetic system and I can open up my energetic pathways and all of a sudden, without coffee or drugs, I feel, hey, maybe I can go for a run now. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, to to become an adult... one of the things that we have to do is stop using the words I have to, which are the words of a child, and use the words I choose to. So once you learn breath work, you're choosing to modulate your autonomic nervous system. You're choosing to intervene and influence your whole internal state. And the more you do that, the more of a sense of self-reliance and self-responsibility you have and then you become more capable of recognizing who else also operates with a self sense of self-reliance and responsibility. So you start gravitating toward people that live in a more adult, self-affirmative, proactive manner. Mm. And I, I think the only way we're going to get through the situation the world is in is to start having an adult self-responsible, proactive manner, because no matter how fucked up the world is, if there's one thing you can do to guarantee it gets better, it's to make yourself better. Uh And once you do that, you can leave the world knowing you left it better than how you found it. Yeah. And then when you start finding other people that do that, well, once you start coupling these minds together, then you get movements like you just talked about with your friends and their ranch that you told me about. You get people like Aubrey... Marcus and Kyle Kingsbury building their thing. You know, mm-hmm. we're you've been to workshops here at my Rainbow House where people come eat real food from local farms, where we put money back into the soil, where you drink the best water I can get my hands on, where you are in the mountains and you got a view and you can go barefoot and you can talk to people, rattle play music bits, together, play music together. Yeah, you know, create art out of wood stones nature um and and then what i mean running our workshops here for example it's always amazing to me to see the friendships that get developed Mm. and to see uh, people that sing together are like people that cuddle together people that lift stones together have great conversations people that lift weights together people that breathe together people that (laughs) like good food together and I remember when the lockdowns were still on, I was like, Sis, I'm not playing this fucking game. I, you know, if people want to come do a workshop with me, I told them, look, the government and all these assholes want you to wear your mask, but it, you're an adult. If you want to wear your mask, go ahead. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then don't. Yeah. I'm sure as hell not going to handcuff you or stick a thermometer in your face and <laughs> give you a nocebo test and convince you that you're sick when you're not. Um, and people... F- I literally had people in tears going, oh my God, Paul, it's so nice to be around normal people. Mm, I witnessed that. You know, and so what happens is people start coming alive again. And I think I think some of the simplest things like dancing, singing, sharing life stories, sharing new ideas, eating good food together, breathing together, um, dreaming together Mm, that's a good one it brings us into a sense of self-empowerment and i know like when i look out at the world i can look at it and say we're fucked 
or I can say, we're going through a transition. And the transition we're going through is a transition into adulthood where we have to accept responsibility for our choices and the impact we have on the life that supports us, which yeah. is the planet, or the Buddhists call it the great chain of being. And those that don't make the transition are going to die and they'll have plenty of time to meditate on it. And unfortunately, a lot of them were never educated, so they don't even know they're doing it. And those of us that do make it are going to basically create a world or we're going to segregate ourselves from the, whoever's left that's not doing it. And we're, we're basically going to have people that continue to grow and evolve. But if you watch what's going on, the people that get caught in the standard medical model and the standard narrative are getting dumber and dumber and dumber yeah. and more and more subservient and more and more easily controlled and brainwashed. And those that are moving away from it was interesting. One of the studies I saw come out during COVID is that um, people with PhDs were far less likely to get vaccinated. <laughs> I'm serious. So what are they showing? People that actually know how to think, think. They're, their own they're, they're actually saying, wait a minute, that's not real science. I'm yeah. not doing that. Yeah. So you see when people actually le reach an adult level of discernment and realize if I make this choice and it gets me sick or dead, it's my fault. That's right. No matter what the government says. Yeah. But everybody else is just being a sheep and going, oh my God, my mother just died or my sister's now sitting over there with Epst uh, you know, uh, some crazy disease, Epstein-Barr or whatever, neurological disease or any number of things that this is causing. And so they just get go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. So I think many of the things that lead us into this collective PTSD also give us exactly the level of discomfort we need to realize that we have to solve this for ourselves. Yeah. There's nobody coming to rescue us. We have to do this for ourselves. And that's really what it means to grow up, is realize that you have the power within yourself to create the changes that ultimately exemplify freedom and set you free. Yeah. And I think really that's a lot of what it sounds to me like you're doing with people. That's the first thing I start with clients. One of my coaches that I've, I've been with for the last two years, he, he said something to me two years ago. He said, your greatest responsibility is that you are responsible for you, right? Yeah. And that's the first thing I start with clients, whether it's one-to-one -one, group settings, it's, it's always that. You are responsible. I also, you know, I, I piggyback that with Victor E. Frankel's quote from Man's Search for Meaning, you know, between stimulus and response, there's a power to choose how you want to respond. Yes. All right. And if we can do that by stopping, taking a breath, identifying where we are at right now, and taking in the information that means something to us and deciding upon that rather than just acting out of this robotic fashion to which we're being signaled by media. You can't go anywhere anymore without being signaled. I mean, I walked through the airport this morning and nearly every single person I, I saw was like this, looking down at yeah. their phone. Now, to me, that signals me. Yeah. That signals a level of stress because it tells me about my relationship that I have with my phone and how I want to be better with it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's signaling me in a way. Now, people who aren't thinking that deep are like, oh, yeah, shit, I need to get on my phone. Mm -hmm. Right? You can't go anywhere without the environment signaling your biology mm -hmm. to behave in a specific way. Yeah. Anymore. And that's what I'm trying to teach is this, this practice of breath 
is a way to access what is going on in your nervous system. And if you can take a breath just for a moment, it doesn't have to be this crazy, you know, 30 inhale, exhales, knock yourself out type thing. It doesn't have to be that. Mm. It can be, and that has some merit. But by simply stopping and breathing in and out of your nose and letting your nervous system come down, Mm -hmm. it's going to be more likely that you're going to make a better decision that is going to be more aligned with your actual values Mm -hmm. and you can start taking responsibility for yourself. And you're choosing to do it. You're choosing to do it. I teach my children this all the time. My little boy, he's my greatest teacher. Man, he's got some fire in him, Mm. you know, and there are moments I share that with you. (laughs) I wish I could just grab him and, you know, but if we stop and I say, all right, man, I know you worked up. You know what? I'm not changing my mind. You know, the decision I've made for your guidance, take a breath. And when he stops, he's a four-year-old, he stops and goes, <sighs> instantly sees body drop, mm. goes for a second one. <sighs> you know the thing he says to me as soon as he does that? All right, daddy, I'm ready to listen. <laughs> well. Of course you are. That's amazing. Where can people find out more about your offerings what you're up to and anything you want to share. So I'm about to do this run across Australia, um, attempting to set a new Guinness world record. Um, I am only working one-to-one at this time, uh, with people and you can find me on social media. Um, Instagram's the easiest place, uh, at the mind dot mechanic. And, um, I get back to everybody who, who comments or messages. Um, you can follow my journey as I run across Australia. We're filming a documentary and we will have a YouTube channel so you can Great. follow along. And uh, some of my sponsors are actually setting up virtual runs where people can actually participate with oh, the virtual cool. run. So yeah. this cause isn't just for me to set this record. This cause is to bring evidence to this work. It's to show people that you have the power in your body body to be able to make change, to be able yeah. to heal yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, and in that journey, um, I'll be working closely with uh, veteran organizations to change our contingency plan, um, which we're having really good traction with. Um, so yeah, people can find me there and follow along on. Awesome. On the gram. Great conversation. I think we covered a lot of really important things not only about PTSD, but about the world. Mm. And so uh, great to see that your journey has led you really from being a trickster that feels, you know, unhappy with their environment and their job to being really in your bliss. Yeah. So, Thank you. Oh, great spirit. Oh, great spirit. Blessings on your run. Thank you, sir. I know you'll be just fine. Me too. I'm sure you'll have plenty of conversations with great spirit to (laughs) ease the feet and lighten the body. Yeah. Thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support, your amazing products. Thanks to all of you for anything you buy from the sponsors that helps support the podcast. And thanks for all of you for listening and being willing to live, love, learn, and grow more. Right now, it's time to do it. I look forward to sharing something fantastic with you soon. If you enjoy the podcast as much as I do, please leave a positive comment on iTunes or any of the podcast outlets. My dream is that we all get together and cross-pollinate and uh, educate each other, hold hands, sing, dance, and turn this place into something we are proud of and disengage from the bullies and let them sort it out while we pray for them. 
Lots of love. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, William Burnett. You can follow Will on Instagram at themind.mechanic as he continues on his travels and with the preparation for his Guinness World Record attempt of running 88 consecutive ultramarathons across Australia in September and October. You can join Will in his training at the Project Light Running Club at strava.com forward slash clubs forward slash 1035725. That's S-T-R-A-V-A dot com forward slash clubs forward slash 1035725. Check out warriorangelsfoundation.org to see the work they do in providing a container and space for veterans to heal their trauma. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com, and you can get your free subscription to Check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, jakiva.com. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.